The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. This morning's scripture reading is from Acts 5, 1 through 11. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in and they found her dead and they carried her out and and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. This is the word of the Lord. Praise Praise be be to Christ. Christ. Well, good morning to everybody in the sanctuary, to those of you on the breezeway. Uh, Good to have you with us out there, uh, those joining us from home. uh, Welcome. This is uh, actually a big day. Uh, It's a celebration uh, for our church. Today is the first year anniversary of Christ Presbyterian Koinonia Congregation. Uh, Actually, a lot of regulars from here have headed up to North Nashville for the later service and also a party that's happening uh, up at the Koinonia location uh, this afternoon from 1230 to 2. Uh, They wanted uh, me to extend an invitation to any of you who would like to join for that as well. Uh, They're at the building on Hospital Road in North Nashville. Uh, But for now, uh, we get to look at uh, this this dynamic uh, this week uh, of lying to the Holy Spirit. It should be fun. So, uh, at the end of chapter 4, uh, we, see this, we see this picture of a healthy, thriving, uh, early church, uh, New Testament church. It says at the end of chapter 4 that they are one in heart and soul, that their lives are being transformed by the gospel, that there's a pervasive spirit of sharing and generosity among them, and, that it's the, and it says that there was great grace upon them all. And then right after that, we get to chapter 5 that starts with the word, but. But what? But Satan. But Satan filled the heart of a man and a woman, and they lied. And that brought chaos to the community, and it brought chaos 
to their own lives. But Satan filled their hearts. So, uh, when I was starting off in ministry, an older pastor told me, watch out, you're going to discover this over the years. Whenever God is at work in your ministry, it will not take long before Satan and or demons try to undermine what's going on in the ministry. Now, now I'm a 21st century American. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a child of Madonna's song. You know, I, I am a material girl living in a material world. We are materialistic people uh, in our part of the world, in this day, in the, and in this age. We, we live on the basis of what's in front of us. What's real to us is what we can see, what we can touch, what we can feel. We are material people. And so, all this talk about the devil and demons, it sounds superstitious, it feels out there, it feels primitive, um, it feels a bit regressive. And yet, the Bible reminds us, especially in the sixth chapter of Ephesians, that our greatest battle is actually not with things that are visible. Our greatest battle is not against flesh and blood, it says there. Uh, instead, it says that our battle is against principalities uh, and forces of darkness that we cannot see. And so, so the devil's first-line strategy, as, as is the case here in Acts 5, is not to get people to fear him so much as his strategy is to get people to ignore him and maybe even assume he doesn't exist. He, he works a lot like you know, silent killers, you know, dormant viruses that, that eventually work their way through the system and, and kill somebody, or a, or a cancer that you're not aware of that grows over the course of years, uh, or, you know, a plaque on the arteries that, that grows, that they're non-symptomatic for, for, for 10, 15 years before they start to take over the whole system. The devil likes to operate like that as a silent killer. But if we don't believe that there's a devil, then, then the truth of the matter is that we're believing the devil. We're believing the devil if we don't believe there is one. Um, you know, I got permission from my wife to share a little bit about her conversion story, which involved two significant factors. Two significant factors led her to Christ. Young Life, which is a, a ministry that, that, that preaches the gospel to students and, and meets them on their level, uh, loves them where they are. So, the first factor that led my wife toward faith in Christ was young life, and the second was a Ouija board. Uh, she was invited to a, a, a gathering of her friends in high school, and there were some, some kids, I think it was in the basement, uh, who were surrounding this, this this board that you can find in any toy store, you can find it in Barnes and Noble, it presents itself a lot like Satan does as harmless. And they're they're gathered around, and 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 it's this board that 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 supposedly you know helps you to communicate with the invisible world. And what started happening? My my, my wife was standing at a distance. She wasn't around the board, but she was standing at a distance observing, and the little thing on the board started pointing to her. It freaked her out a little bit. And then it started to spell the name of her deceased brother, Michael. 
Nobody knew in that room that she had a brother who had died. And it, it, it said M, I, C, H, A, you know, after, you know, it pointed to her several times, and, and that really freaked her out. And so she flipped the board over, ran out of the room, and, you know, was asking in her heart, you know, the equivalent of what must I do to be saved, right? My wife would tell you that, a, that, a, that an experience with the invisible realities of darkness were, 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 were an aspect that, that led her out of skepticism about the spiritual world toward Christ and, and ultimately to faith in Christ. This stuff is real. Now, there are, parts, there, are parts, there are places around the world where, you know, that would be the most obvious statement you could make because occult practices are everywhere and, you know, you know and so on. But in our part of the world and in our day and age, we're skeptical. Um, and yet it says here in the Scriptures, Satan filled the hearts of two people, and that's, that was what triggered a train wreck of an experience. And so, one essential, one key sign that, that, that Satan is lurking, that, that the demonic forces are lur lurking, is the telling and the believing of things that are not true in the context of community. The telling and the believing of things that are not true or that are half true or that are untrue. It started in the Garden of Eden. This was how sin entered the world. Satan said and suggested some untrue things about God to Adam and Eve, and they believed him. And the rest was literally history. Uh, and then there are the lies that people tell. There are the lies that people believe. And so, I want to spend the, the remainder of our time talking about lies under these three headings. First, why lying should scare us, why we do it anyway, and how to break the habit. So, so we'll start with why lying should scare us. If you go to the eighth chapter of John's gospel, John was somebody who lived a good part of three years alongside Jesus, witnessed all kinds of, of, um, of supernatural realities, you know, in and around Jesus. So, John was very dialed into these things. He wrote this in John chapter 8. He wrote about how Jesus Himself said that Satan is the liar beneath the lies. He said, the devil, Jesus did, does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When the devil lies, Jesus said, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar, and he is the father of lies. And so, when lies are told, like it, ha like, like it is the case with this, this early church community, it brings chaos into communities. But it also brings chaos into the life of the liar. You know, you've got here a husband and a wife, Ananias and Sapphira. They decided together, they conspired together to exaggerate the proportion of their gift. They sell a field, they, they, they donate it to, you know, the church so that the church can distribute it to the poor, and they exaggerate the proportion. They say, you know, everything we got for the field, it's all here. And, and, and what, what, what really happened, though, was they kept some of it back. And perfectly legitimate and fine to sell something, keep some of it back, and give some of it. That's not the issue. The issue is the lying. The issue is the deceit. And they get the death penalty for it. 
straight from on high. And, and I don't know about you, but my, what, what, what my mind and my heart say when I see an account like this is, what on earth? You know, it happened in the Old Testament a couple of times. There's, you know, these guys named Nadab and Abihu, uh, you know, who, you know, grab the Ark of the Covenant as it's falling to the ground, and they're struck dead. And, you know, you're like, what on earth? And then there's another guy in, in, in um, I think it's Joshua chapter 7 named Achan who, who tells a lie and gets the death penalty for, for telling a lie as well about holding back some things. I mean, isn't this a bit of an overcorrection we might ask ourselves. And what I, what I want to convince us of is a couple of things, but, you know, one of the main things I want to convince us of here is that God is not zealous to destroy people. God is zealous to destroy problems that destroy people. God is not zealous to destroy sinners, not at all. He's zealous to destroy sin. He wants to kill the cancer to save the community. You know, Ezekiel chapter 33, there, there's this statement from, from, you know, the man that theologians know as the prophet of doom, and he, and he says that the Lord takes no pleasure in the death even of a wicked person. In Luke chapter 19, we, we see Jesus standing over Jerusalem. Jerusalem has rejected Him. Jerusalem's rejected His message. Jerusalem is headed uh, for, uh, for destruction. Jesus knows this, and it says that He weeps over them, and He weeps over their situation that they had gotten themselves into. And so, what's happening here, I believe, in Acts chapter 5 is God is act, acting a lot more like a surgeon than He is an executioner. I don't know if you've ever been on the, the Jack Daniels distillery tour. I, I actually am not a big fan of Jack Daniels. I, I'll say that publicly. I know that, that might be anathema to say that in Tennessee. Um, but completely fascinated by the tour, completely fascinated by it. And toward the end of the tour, the tour guide will point to a safe that, 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 that Jack Daniels held, uh, had in his office. And, and he'll tell the story about how one day Jack Daniels had a temper tantrum, and he kicked the safe, and, and it gave his foot an infection. And the infection started to travel up his leg toward his torso, and so they had to amputate his leg in order to prevent the, the infection from taking over his whole body. They amputated part of him to save the rest of him. What we've got here is an amputation. An amputation is traumatic, it's disruptive, but what God is amputating here more than He is amputating Ananias and Sapphira out of the community, which I'll get to in a minute, He's amputating their complacency, or what you could call their Christian nominalism, where they behave in Christian name, behave Christian in name only. It says that the, this couple had actually conspired. They had planned together. They had premeditated together to lie to the whole community. And what's the result when, when God amputates the lying and in doing that amputates this couple from the community. It says that great fear came on everybody. That was what God was after. He wanted everybody to fear something. What did they fear? 
They feared themselves. They feared their own potential to be Ananias and Sapphira. It was like God putting a smelling salt under the nose of everybody in this community to remind us that every heart is capable of what you have just witnessed. There is no heart that is incapable. You know, we're going to receive the Lord's Supper shortly, and at the giving of the very first Lord's Supper, Jesus looks around the table at His disciples, the people who followed Him and walked with Him for three solid years, and He says, one of you is going to betray Me. And not a single person said, oh, I know He's talking about Judas. It says that every last one of them turned with concern to the Lord and said, is it I, Lord? Am I going to be the one to betray you? We, we must never outgrow that place of sobriety, that, that place of sober recognition of our own ability to become drunk on lies. The sure sign that we are in spiritual danger is that we don't think that we are in spiritual danger. You know, if you, if you are in the email database of our church uh, and have not unsubscribed yourself from it, you will receive a birthday, happy birthday email from me uh, telling you that I'm going to be praying for you on your birthday, and I, I actually do. I pray for you by name. If you get that email, that means I have prayed for you. And I invite people to, you know, add anything else that they would like for me to pray for them. And just a couple of days ago, a, a guy who had a birthday responded and said, I would really love it if you could pray for me in my ongoing fight for sobriety. Now, this was a man who had had an alcohol problem for many years. He's actually been sober for quite some time, and, and I was struck, especially as I'm studying this Scripture, that he has still got his guard up against his own potential. Even though he's been sober for years, he's got his guard up that it's in me given the right set of circumstances, given the right level of, of temptation, given the right level of stress, it's in me to fall off the wagon. So please pray for me in this. You know, Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, be on guard against all kinds of greed. Now, some, some of us are greedy for, you know, a substance, and, and we, we fall into substance abuse. Some of us are greedy for ambition. Some of us are, you know, out of ambition. Some of us are greedy for wealth. Some of us are greedy for status. Some of us are greedy for power. Everybody has a form of greed, and Jesus says, be on guard against all forms of greed. Be on guard, lest the devil sneak up on you and infect your heart. But let's get back to it. The death penalty? I mean, couldn't God have just said, you're caught. Don't do that again. He could have. You know, there are a couple of theories here. Some, some think that, that, that Ananias and Sapphira's conspiracy to deceive exposes them as being false, as being what Jesus called goats. There are sheep, real believers, and there are goats, those who pretend to be believers, or as weeds. You know, there, there, are, there are, you know, the, the wheat, which, which represents true believers, and then there are the weeds that grow up with the weed that, that are actually fake um, you know, fake followers of Christ that, that, that grow up alongside the wheat. That's one theory, that, they, they, that God was, you know, just, you know, unloading His, His, His judgment for their unbelief earlier than He does with most. 
I actually don't think that's what was going on here, and I'll tell you why in a second. The other alternative is that great grace was on Ananias and Sapphira, just like great grace was on the entire community. And as God amputates their deceit from the community, and He takes them out, I believe that, that, that the clues in the text indicate that God is sparing Ananias and Sapphira of what they could have become if they continued on the trajectory that had been started. They tell a lie, but they very easily on this trajectory could have become just flat-out liars. I believe God is sparing them from this. My take here is that God determined in His wisdom that Ananias and Sapphira themselves were safer and better off dead and redeemed than they were alive and on a road to even greater sin. They had kicked the safe, you could say, and the infection was making its way up the leg and into the body and toward the vital organs. Why do I say this? Am I just, you know, being a wishful thinking, you know, everybody gets in in the end kind of guy? No, I actually think it's here in the text. It says in verse 6 that when, when they died, the people in the church took their bodies and wrapped their bodies for burial. That's what that's not what people did with disgraced people who were written out of the community. That's what, that's what they did with people who were family. They would wrap your body. It was a sign of honor for the deceased. It was a sign of belonging and, and, and a severing not only of, of, of these people from our community, but a severing of our own hearts because they're part of us and we're part of them. That's what it meant to wrap somebody for burial. You're treating them like family. But the other thing is the contrast. If you look at Judas, who, who actually was among the goats and who actually was among the weeds, to use Jesus' metaphors, whenever you read in the Gospels about Judas, his, fellow, his former fellow disciples call him the betrayer. That's his identity. They don't name him as family. They don't treat him as family. They call him the betrayer. And then in Matthew 27, it says that Judas is buried in a place called the potter's field, which is also known as, it says in Matthew 27, a burial place for strangers. Say, so there's no wrapping him. There's no treating him like family. There's no honoring him as a family member who's been severed off. And so I, I think the clues here indicate a truth that should comfort all of us, then in the same way Jacob, who was a habitual liar, and in the same way that Jesus lied repeated, or, or Peter, Jesus never lied, Peter lied repeatedly about Jesus, I didn't know him, I didn't know him, I don't know this man. And yet Jesus, you know, looks at Jacob, and, you know, his, and Jacob's been influenced by the father of lies, and, and, and the Lord turns him into the father of the tribes of Israel. And, and, and Peter, who, who betrays Jesus and, 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 and lies about, you know, having not known Jesus, and Jesus returns from the dead and restores him in love. There is precedent for this kind of thing. Here's the great grace that should comfort us all, God will not judge us by the last thing that we do before we die. He will judge us by the last thing that Jesus did before He died. 
giving his life for liars. That is your reason and mine to stop lying. <laughs> that's, the, that's the great thing about great grace is it doesn't coerce you into telling the truth. It actually makes you want to be truthful. Lying should scare us. Why do we do it anyway? Why do Christians lie? Why do Christians believe lies? Why do we want to hear lies? Why do we want to believe them? Why does Paul spend so much time talking about gossip and slander and how there are cancers in the church and how you shouldn't entertain a charge against somebody unless you have several witnesses on hand? The due process is essential to confirm that somebody's not just trying to hurt somebody. Why do we do it? Why do we want to lie? Why do we want to believe lies? Why do we want to live by them? Because Satan tricks us into believing that it is better to look good than it is to be good. That's one of his greatest tricks, to get us to think it's better to look good than it is to be good, that optics are more important than authenticity. You know, Blaise Pascal put it this way. He said, we're not satisfied with the lives that we have in ourselves. We want to lead an imaginary life in the eyes of others, to make an impression, he said. It's what Jack Miller called being an approval suck. Junkies for approval. I think that's what's going on with, with Ananias and Sapphira. They have a moment here, right? They, they witness at the end of chapter 4 this guy named Barnabas, right? We, we talked about him a couple of weeks ago. Barnabas sold a field, and so let's sell a field too. Why? Because when Barnabas sold a field and gave the proceeds, they gave him a nickname. Now they call him the son of encouragement. Maybe if we, maybe if we did the same, and maybe if we convinced them that we're giving all of, of the proceeds like he gave all of the proceeds, maybe we'll get a nickname too. Maybe we'll get some kind of recognition too. Maybe we'll get our names on a donor list. And Sapphira, you know, her, her, her name is, is famously known as, as sort of a bourgeoisie kind of name. Yeah, if, you were, if your name was Sapphira, you're probably a rich girl who, you know, grows up and has, you know, the first century equivalent of a trust fund, like a big trust fund. Like, they're used to wealth, right? And so they're used to, you know, seeing what happens if people get on donor lists and the prestige that, that comes from that. Jesus calls this hypocrisy. Now, when he uses the, the word hypocrisy, that would be like a 21st century person using the word actor. Because a hypocrite back then was, was, was the same word that was used for a stage actor, a theater actor. And, and, and what's happened here tragically with Ananias and Sapphira is that they've, they've had a moment or a season where they've turned their religion into theater like the scribes, scribes and Pharisees had, where the external presentation is not congruent with the internal reality. John Stott put it this way. He said, Ananias and Sapphira lacked integrity. They were thieves, and above all, they were liars. They wanted the credit and prestige for sacrificial generosity without the inconvenience of it. So in order to gain a reputation to which they had no right, they told a brazen lie. Their motive in giving was not to relieve the poor, but to fatten their own ego. Notice, he didn't say their motive was to fatten their, their, their bank accounts. It was to fatten their ego. We are all susceptible to this. 
So when I was a high school senior, I was a, a you know, I was basketball player, and I, I played basketball every evening with this group of older guys, most of whom were, you know, were, were former college basketball players, right? And so, so we're playing basketball, and, you know, there's the shirts and skins. You know, skins take their shirt off. The guys with the shirts have the shirts, right? And so, playing basketball, and I'm wearing a jersey of a college that I dreamed all my life of playing basketball for, University of North Carolina. And somebody on the sideline said, hey, you see that guy? He's going to play at UNC. And I didn't correct him because I wanted it to be true. And even though it wasn't true, I wanted people to think it was true. That's what you call a lie of omission. The truth is that I went to play basketball at a smaller college with a mediocre team and only lasted for a day. Why do we do this? Well, Chip Dodd says, here's why. The answer to all of life is a question. I like you. Do you like me? Check yes or no. All of life. You know, Tom Arnold, the comedian, wrote this book called How I Lost Six Pounds, or no, How I Lost Five Pounds in Six Years. And he, he toured the book, did interviews with the book, and an interviewer asked him, you know, why'd you write the book? He said, oh, that's easy. We who are in entertainment, and I, I could put, you know, we who are in ministry, you could put, you know, we who are in whatever. We who are in entertainment, he says, are deeply broken people, desperate for people's approval. And so the reason why I wrote the book was so I could have something out there so that people would like me. It's the reason behind everything I do. When we forget that we have always got the approval of God and the favor of God hovering over us because of what Jesus has done, we will always seek that approval elsewhere. We'll always be trying to find it somewhere else. You want to know why you're so sensitive to criticism? You want to know why you can't take feedback? You want to know why you cut off relationships like you do? You want to know why? This is why. You have moments where it's more important to you to appear as something rather than to be something. How do we break the habit? It's easy and it's excruciating. Confess your sin. Just tell the truth, which includes telling on yourself, especially to God. You know, the, the tragedy for Ananias and Sapphira is that they felt like it was safer to cover up than it was to confess. And this is why, you know, so many people say, I would never consider Christianity because Christians are hypocrites. So, let's just acknowledge the obvious. We are. We are. If a hypocrite is somebody who does not live consistently with what they say they believe and with what they say is beautiful and good and right, if, 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 if a hypocrite is a person who does not live up to the things that they say, then we are all hypocrites. And so the question becomes, is there a pathway where we can become hypocrites with integrity? 
endearing hypocrites, trustworthy hypocrites, honest hypocrites, honest liars. That's actually the basis for the gospel (laughs) is to confess your sin. Confess how short you fall of the glory of God so that you will be healed. I know it's counterintuitive. People who openly admit where they fail, that's what you could call an honest hypocrite, a truthful liar. So, Jonah, great example. I mean, this guy, you don't want to be roommates with him. You don't want to be married to him. You, you know, you, you don't want to be around him. Because in the book of Jonah, he, he is presented as a xenophobe, racist, entitled, resentful, self-centered, narcissistic. Who wrote Jonah? Jonah wrote Jonah. In the same way that Paul, at the end of his life and ministry, says, I'm the chief of sinners, and a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent man. In Romans 7, Paul talks about, you know, the inner life of coveting. Do you know that there's not a single thing you can do that will warm the heart of God more than for you to tell on yourself? To tell Him, as we were reminded by Rob Wheeler during the confession time, what he already knows. I've been waiting, just like the father waiting for the prodigal son to come home. I've been waiting. Few things warm the heart of God more than sinners who are in the habit of telling on themselves. It's part of why we have weekly confession uh, in our liturgy. It's just to train the muscle memory of our soul to, to tell on ourselves to God, and, and, and to understand that, that the gospel gives us a safe place with God to do that. It also gives us the kind of resources in a community to have rich community with one another through truth-telling, not through lying about ourselves, not through posturing, not through trying to appear as opposed to just being our transparent Cells. I mean, this is, this is part of the magic of the recovery movement, is that people just tell the relentless, honest truth about their own struggle and about how they've, you know, fallen off the wagon or whatever, and then the whole room looks at them and says, oh, you too? Let's be friends. You know, anybody who's been through recovery, I mean, most, most would tell you that, you know, the people who sponsored them and, and those that they've sponsored are, are lifetime friends. So, confess your sin. Your relationship with God will be richer, and your community life will be richer, but then also receive the truth. You know, Jesus said, I am the truth, and the greatest truth about Jesus is that He lavishes great grace on liars. Liars like Jacob, like Peter, I believe like Ananias and Sapphira, liars like you, liars like me. The things that you like the least about yourself, the things that you want to hide the most, the worst things about you are the things that triggered God to send His only begotten Son in love to recover you and to make you His own. There's this exchange 
that's spoken of in 2 Corinthians 5.21 where it says that God made him Jesus who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness, that we might become the reputation of God. That we would get credited to us everything that he's done, everything he's, he's accomplished, including his perfect truth-telling. But in order for that to happen, lies had to be told about him. People said he was a glutton, he was a drunk because of who he hung out with, not because he was a glutton or a drunk, but because he hung out with gluttons and drunks. He loved gluttons and drunks. And he's a blasphemer, which of course he wasn't. But Pontius Pilate even the governor recognized Jesus' innocence and was so shocked that Jesus didn't defend himself against false accusations. You know, here you have Ananias and Sapphira, um, you know, protecting themselves, you know, by, 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 you know, by telling a lie. And then and, and here you have Jesus not protecting himself by telling the truth. He doesn't set the record straight about himself because he knows that he has to take the fall for liars so that liars can be set free, so that liars can be redeemed, so that liars can be received. He got the death penalty. He was struck dead prematurely so that we would live, so that the truth about him could be credited to sinners, even to liars like Jacob, Peter, Ananias, and Sapphira, and us. That's, that's his invitation. To, to the Lord's table. You know, the Lord's table itself is a table for sinners. You know, we, we've, we've, we've talked about this before at, at our church that, you know, maybe one of the best descriptions of the Lord's Supper is the dysfunctional family meal. 